This is Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, it's Taylor's version. Taylor Swift has taken over America in 2023 with her new album, Midnight's, and her ultra-popular Eras Tour. It seems like she's emerged from a public battle with the music industry's highest powers as the victor. If you don't know, a few years back, Taylor's label went up for sale. Among their assets were the master recordings to her entire catalog. This means that the new owner, a man by the name of Scooter, had an enormous control over the master copies of Taylor's songs. His new label owned it. In late 2019, the relationship between Braun and Swift collapsed, so Taylor pulled the trigger on her nuclear option, re-recording her old catalog so that she could own the masters. In the years since she started re-recording her Taylor's versions, her fan base, known as the Swifties, have committed to streaming only her songs. Now, as the heiress tour rounds the home stretch of its U.S. leg, Taylor dropped her latest Taylor's version to much fanfare. She has made correct move after correct move in her career. So today, we get into it. And welcome to what I believe is episode... 80 or 81 of Game Theory, a podcast about competition strategy and decision making. And we had a little uh, miscommunication, well, not a miscommunication last week. Some things came up and, and we had to live life. And also everyone in the summer just wants to take their shirt off and, and do beach stuff and summer stuff. So that's what we were kind of doing. And we just didn't get the episode in on time. I was in uh, Canada, I believe it's pronounced. Were you doing beach stuff in Canada? No, it was in mountain stuff. Same thing. You're an international traveler. <laughs> I am an international traveler to the 51st state, which is Alberta. Um, did, did, did you get did you get uh, a fillet with mushroom sauce on the plane there? Uh, no, but I did get a fillet with mushroom sauce at a steakhouse there. So Alberta, Chris, if you've never been to Alberta, I imagine you haven't. Um, no, it's just Montana, but it's in Canada. But it's my, way more Montana y. There's a lot more mountains, but they're they seem taller, but they're not. They're about the same. So thinking about Canadian geography, that's the one that's like the second province from the West Coast, right? It's like British Columbia, right, then exactly. Alberta, it's literally then Saskatchewan, the then Manitoba, then Ontario. And then I think it's a separatist slash quasi-terrorist state, Quebec. the name of which I won't, I won't <laughs> utter here. Yes. So Alberta, like I said, it's Montana. It's exactly where Montana is in the map, which is up from Montana. Um, I will say a couple things quick about Canada that I really liked. First, they do a fantastic job of essentially apologizing to and recognizing the First Nations. Every single... So we went to the Calgary Stampede, my wife and I, on what was a belated honeymoon slash victory lap for her finishing her medical training. So we went to the Calgary Stampede, which there are three big rodeos in the world. There's consensus, three of them. And that's Overland State Stampede and Green River. Yes, no. (laughs) Uh, Frontier Days, the Houston Stock Show... And the Calgary Stampede. So the Stampede is the classiest one. and I believe that. Everywhere they go, uh, every event they have, there's like this This land was originally this or this land was stolen from these people. And it's everywhere. Every single event was like, this is a thing. And they, they do a great job of pronouncing the, the, the names of the nationalities correctly. I'm like, this is embarrassing for us. 
I would say. Well, they, they do a really good job of saying that, but I yes. notice they're not in a really big hurry to give the land back. Yeah, that is very I, much I have true. noticed that small detail. Right. So in twenty twenty one what's the end game here? Wikipedia did recognize the North American genocide of the First Nations as the largest genocide in human history, but who's to say what Wikipedia's authority is? Wikipedia described it as the largest genocide if in you, human history. If you Google largest genocides by death toll, North American First Nations is number one. If you Google Secretary of Defense Tim Howard, you'll find that Tim <laughs> Howard, goalie for the United States men's soccer team, you will was find once an article that took a screenshot of Wikipedia at uh -huh. the time. You will, yes. Oh, but speaking of that, the World Cup is yeah. happening, which is great. This episode, we're going to be talking about Taylor Swift's throwdown with Scooter Braun and Taylor's version. We will be very clear. I am a former Swifty, and now I am scared of Swifties, which makes me think maybe, uh, yeah, I don't, I'm not willing to be a Swifty because they scare me. Well, yep. this is actually a, a good opportunity for us to get, I think, pretty valuable insight into your upbringing and I want to say cultural, Our maybe upbringing. spiritual history. You, because as we all know, you were raised Seinfeld. Yes, you could quote, quote scripture with the best of them. And I think in your teen years, when you started experiencing the rebellious phase, mm. you fell into a cult. Yeah. Well, and that cult persists today. They're very, they're very strong. They're very influential. And if you say anything negative about them, they will disappear you. So, and I'm yeah. not talking about the cult that Tom Cruise is in. <laughs> that's well, that's a religion, Chris. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I misspoke. Um, yeah. So you got to, you're going to talk about the Taylor Swift scooter Braun stuff and, um, some other angles on how Spotify works for artists in general. Well, Garth Brooks has been a big, uh, player in this kind of stuff as well, because he's got a lot of Taylor Swift like things, which a huge fan base, a huge following that he can kind of control his music and he's been doing it for a long time. We'll also might touch on the Grateful Dead. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. We did finish our book, The Swerve. The book club kind of sputtered to a finish on the app because everybody's doing summer stuff. Like we said, I have a pitch for you on the second book. I think our ambitions were four. I think two is reasonable, <laughs> just like any other summer think, reading list. I think that's reasonably fair. You know, it, how many times on the show have we talked about, is it Hofstadt's Law? Yeah. I can never, I can never remember the name of the guy, and With I cite DT, it all the I time. Yeah, I think it's hostile. But the law is that something is going to take longer than you think it's going to take, even after factoring in Hofstadt's law or whatever the name of the law is, because we tried reading the book. Yeah, we did our best. I read you it. and I both completed the book. Yeah, shout outs to everybody that joined us on our journey. Even if you didn't complete it cover to cover, guys, there's no shame in not finishing a book. No there's shame. no shame in no. starting a book digging in deeply and figuring out, you know what, maybe this just isn't for me. We're not here to book shame anybody. We're not here to poo-poo anybody's reading habits or life decisions, whatever else. We're excited for a non-zero number of people who joined us on the journey. Shout out to everybody who has. And we're going to continue to do this sort of thing because it's fun to engage quasi-intellectually with some important literature, fiction and non. And I think the book was a valuable read, although I didn't really care for it personally. There's some criticisms. But that said... I think there's a lot to be gained from going into a, a book and understanding that it can be criticized. And I, I, I looked up a lot of, for, for whatever reason, just a quick diversion on the book itself, for whatever reason, it, it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Mm -hmm. It seemed a little bit like wisecrack on the block. Some kid who knows a little bit more than everybody else is like, hey, let me tell the real story of how we became the modern world. And it just seemed a little bit too edgy, a little bit too, I don't know, corner store I, type of book and i couldn't figure out what it was and so i did took the time to like find some criticisms and 
I found people who were articulate of thoughts and feelings that I'd had going into the book and like, Oh wow, this is really, really interesting. And I actually learned quite a few things from that. You so we'll, we'll talk about that when we record Green our book Blatt's episode. Anger, which is annoying. Yeah. I sense, I sense Greenblatt's dismissiveness and his pretension, his genuine scholarship, but also his arrogance. I think there's a, there's a combination of factors at play. Here, but we'll, we'll get into that because arrogant? we plan to record an Shut episode up. about the book, right? Yeah. We're going to do either a bonus episode or a bonus YouTube video about the book. Um, we'll read some fable comments. There are somewhere between nine to 12 of you in the book club and we're going to keep the book club going. Maybe we can try for six books a year. That's not bad, right? That's totally like possible that. for, for, uh, for an adult. Okay. Book club number two, and this is from uh, one of our power listeners, Allie. She said, we should read books that everyone claims to have read or like not claims like no, not no one's lying, yes. but you're like, Oh, of course I'm familiar with that. Like, shut the fuck up. No, you're not. Yeah, I polite, polite society you. dictates that you should never ask somebody if they've actually read the great Gatsby, for example, for example. everyone thinks they've read that book. Everyone wants to say they've read that book. They enjoyed the Leonardo DiCaprio interpretation of that great. movie. Me too. I don't think anybody has actually read it. So we're going to take the time. And we're going to read a couple of those books, Evan. Shout out to Allie for that spectacular mm -hmm. idea. It's very funny and very, it I think it's going to be very interesting. I got one for you. I figured like what would be interesting and a complete kind of opposite from what we just did in terms of like something maybe exciting or fun and uh, fiction this time. So I, I have it. Something with Sherlock Holmes. I think maybe Hound of the Baskervilles Ooh. or A Study in Scarlet. Because I have like tried those a couple of times. And like when I was like 12, like I wasn't into it. And everyone's like, oh, everyone knows Sherlock. Like, oh. Do you? Have you read a Sherlock Holmes novel or novella? I don't think you have. This, this, this takes me back to when we used to go camping with the old man. Yeah. And occasionally he would bring me, bring that little like travel chess set mm -hmm. to play yeah. when we were back from fishing or whatever. And then he brought he brought Sherlock Holmes a couple of times. And he read like, I think he read like the Speckled Dan to us one time. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he did. He did read that to us. Also, he he was a big mystery. He was like read us in or he read Encyclopedia Brown where like you participate mm -hmm. in the mystery. So I think Sherlock Holmes might be the move. I think Hound of the Baskervilles or Study in Scarlet. I think Hound of the Baskervilles is like a novella and Study yes. in Scarlet is a novel, I think. Either of those, I think it's it I think it's a little bit shorter than I think they they might both be rightly called novellas, but I will tell you, uh, I've actually read a study in Scarlet, mm. and I think it's Whoa. super interesting, and it's much more pertinent to American life yes. than you might think if you hadn't read it, but claimed to have read Sherlock Holmes. Um, also, the Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, transformative show from BBC is no longer on Netflix, so nobody can cheat. That's right. That's right. We can't watch the modern adaptations of these stories. We have to use the real terminology that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle used when he wrote the stories. I think that's a really good idea. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I think we should do one of those too. So we'll, since, since you have not done, and everyone says the Hound is the best one, we'll do the Hound. We'll do the dog one. Hound of the Baskervilles. We'll read the Hound. The, the Hound, Hound of the Baskervilles, baby. Let's go. Book number two to the end of summer. Okay, let's, let's talk about Taylor Swift. So the first thing I want to say emphatically, like I said, I am a former Swifty. It's not that I dislike her now. It's that I'm scared of all of you. And I think I'm very much, I'm not the man that runs into the fire, but I'm also not the man that runs away with the crowd. I'm the guy that stands up on the rock and watches people running. I'm like, I don't know. I don't want to go this way or that way. I'm just going to watch this happen. You're like, that, you're like Simba in that scene from Lion King. That's literally the, go by. the perfect thing. I'm just, like, just going to watch this. I'm not going to go with the crowd. I'm not going to go against the crowd. I'm just going to observe what's happening. And what I have observed is there are some Swifties that speak about Taylor and Taylor's work in a way that if you simply changed a couple words around, reminds one of how uh, followers of a certain savior who maybe not are, 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 are not balanced people talk about that savior. Just saying. Aaron Rodgers? Yep, totally. Um, 
where there's no besmirching under any circumstances and uh, violence is the answer. So that's just observed. If you go on TikTok and find some radical Christians talking about Jesus, um, that's a lot of Swifties sound very similar and they will not besmirch her under any circumstances. That's you know, there's, there, there's an interesting article that I saw that uh, compares the... So right now, as we're recording this, if you're yeah. listening to this sometime in the far-flung future, <laughs> first of all, sorry that you found this. Yeah, don't. You can leave. It's totally fine. Second of all, we're recording this in mid-2023, and we're, we're kind of in the swing of the Taylor Swift Eras Tour. Right in the so middle. So yep. I, I just... I want to get something straight right now so taylor swift is how old is she right now like 30 she's one year older than me so she's gonna she's turning 34 i think yeah so like as an artist she's already like dominated the scene of pop culture i mean everybody everybody knows who this person is and is familiar with her work because it's really good but she's also like as artists go she's still on the upswing yeah so for somebody who isn't quite 35 to have had eras like for i i just my biggest criticism is that that diminishes what an era is. What this is really, it, it, and this word sounds so much cheesier because it is, uh, these are phases. Oh, there's no there there's go. no eras at work here. There's no like defined cultural period that is undergirded by foundational. Like, no, these are phases of somebody playing country music and then playing sad music and then playing peppy music and now playing angsty music. So I just, and it also undersells what Taylor Swift is likely to do in the future. Yes. I mean, she's only going to continue to get be bigger and better. I mean, Most it's not likely. like she's slowing down like, oh, she's running out of musical ideas. No. No, none she's of them be do. None of the really good ones do. A lot of them no. like Prince has apparently an entire discography that's been recorded and packaged and ready to be released. He had documentaries made that were just he just has them in now his estate and they're not to be released. It's crazy what these artists can do and how much money they have. But yes, I agree with you, but the eras thing, of course, is a play on like I'm in my villain era or whatever. Also, the weirdest. Yeah, it's thing very about, much. A, it's a Gen Z like uh, yeah. th that. That phrasing is well, is very much in vogue. Taylor Swift so, is the. Yeah. I would argue that, with the exception of Donald Trump, and this is not political. This is just my opinion of studying this in school. Taylor Swift and Donald Trump are the greatest marketers in the history of the world. They can market in a way that is profound. They know exactly what they're doing. I think. Um, you well, I think I think there's another another couple of examples of really good marketers whose messages that we do not agree with on this particular show. Sure. Sure. I'm um, going to say the name of the, I think that's the honestly most prominent example. Uh, which one? Say it. Well, uh, the bad guy <laughs> from the, the, the bad guy from the big contest in the thirties and forties. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The that bad guy was a pretty good marketer. Yep. That was a great marketer, but if, not yeah, for if you everybody, wanna, if you want to phrase it that way, that would be a good, yeah, for sure. For sure. But she's a brilliant marketer. So of course she's going to be turned, uh, she's going to use the memes and the language that we're using. And that's why her music is so connective. I am a Swifty from what I would call the first folio of the first, <laughs> for the thespians folio. among us. Yes. And so what happened was she really shakes. We'll go through her discography in my relationship with it. First album comes out. That was transformative there. I don't think there has been, there've only been a handful of debut albums that were like that, that kind of connected with people that hadn't been spoken to. This was early social media. This was MySpace and Friendster. Facebook was like young, young, like most people couldn't get Facebook when the debut album came out and it kind of spoke to people that had never really been spoken to before. When did it, when did it actually drop? I what think was 2006 was a single 2007 was the album somewhere in there. It was Tim McGraw was the first song that, and then let's, let's look it up so we can get some actual official numbers. Sure. Here. The discography. Keep yes. going. 
Okay, so then I'm, I'm, um, I'm doing it, I'm doing research, so you you yes, continue to fill the airspace here. So, um, and that album again, transformative. Everybody liked every song. There was a homophobic lyric that was awesome and hilarious that has been since been scrubbed from the internet. By the way, Taylor very good at that as well. Um, mm. Yep, I saw her in concert. She was so. This is can't question my Swifty credentials. First, I've seen her three times. Uh, first time I saw her, she was opening for Rascal Flats in Cheyenne. Wait, really? Mm-hmm. And That's I'll be honest with you, sick. she was such a good songwriter and lyricist, but she was not a very good musician compared to how famous she had become. And I, I was watching her as I was like 16, 17, and be like, I'm not 100% sure that she's a better guitar player from, than me. I'm actually pretty sure I'm better than her right now in this moment. It looked very much like the guitar was playing her, like this is uncomfortable. But she was kind of, she had blown up so big so quickly that she was like learning how to do that kind of stuff in the moment. Like that's what you do, right? So what's she going to do? Say no to the gig? Like you got to go. Um, by the time, you know, the next two or three albums came out, she had become like a real legit musician. She was learning on the fly, essentially. She got famous a couple of years earlier than most big bands do. Then the... the Second thing, the second thing that happens, Love Story came out, and Love Story was maybe the most clutch performance in the history of sports, um, <laughs> because she, what a big album for this girl is like literally a child, a girl to come out with, and then for her biggest song in her entire canon to be her follow up. Then everyone kind of like I remember there was like a sigh of relief. Oh, okay, like it wasn't a one time thing because there have been other artists like Lord and Billy Eilish, like oh yeah, you're really good, but it, that, that that moment in history is gone. Taylor Swift nailed the second one. Then there was this thing, Chris, this is every other year, Taylor would have an album come out. And as that album was sweeping across the country, the San Francisco Giants would win the World Series every single time. It was like a, <laughs> it was like a cycle of like even year, Taylor Swift, San Francisco Giants. It was, yeah, it was a thing. I, okay, so so let's 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 pair that up to the discography here. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna look up the uh, World Series champions by year because I I I do remember that exact thing being kind of like a noted fact. It was a fact, and uh, we can we can match it up right. It here was twelve fourteen. So, I think it was like ten twelve fourteen maybe. So we've got here's the entire discography of her studio albums. So these are not the Taylor's version. And we'll get into these that, aren't yeah. any live albums. So. Her first album is self-titled Taylor Swift. It was released October 24th, 2006. Mm -hmm. Then she released Fearless on Veterans Day slash Armistice Day 2008. <laughs> so two years later. Two years later, she released Speak Now on October 25th, 2010. Yep, Red came out almost exactly two years later, October 2012. 1989, released almost two years after that, October 2014. Uh, then she took a long break. Next album didn't come out for another three years. Released yes. in November 2017, Reputation, then Lover 2019, Folklore, and Evermore released in the same year, both in 2020, one in July, one in December. And then her most recent studio album was Midnights, which she released October 21st, 2022. So there is, there's a, about an album every other year, give or take. And, you know, there, there's, some, there's some breaks in there, and obviously not everything works you know, quite like clockwork, but... It was like a, a, every other year, every even year, Taylor yep. Swift releases an album. And I'm looking up the World Series champions by year here. So we've got the ESPN data to, to compare. Mm -hmm. But that is a really interesting uh, pattern here. So, okay. In 2010, San Francisco Giants win the World Series. 2011, Cardinals. 2012, San Francisco Giants win the World Series. 2013, Red Sox. 2014, 
the San Francisco Giants win the World Series. Yeah, it was a thing. And because they would come out right before the MLB playoffs started, essentially like right in the middle of them going on. So everybody would be wrapped up in T-Swift stuff. And then also the Giants would win the World Series. It was a thing. And then she takes that long break, Chris. And that's where the, the meat of our episode comes in. And that's so there's first folio. That's like every other year she's popping off. This is Taylor 1.0, right? And then there's yeah, up a gap. Up to 1989, which, which is like, you know, she during that time she kind of transformed from like a, a country artist ish to like a pop country artist and then when when i feel like red and 1989 those are fully just pop albums well red was the the real transition and i i have gotten into fights with swifties red is besmirched and it will not be besmirched here it is her actual best album and i will not hear wow. a counter argument um it, and that's because she used the same naming convention that weezer uses and also the beatles and other bunch of others yes um so, well, okay. so she transitions. She's a pop best, artist. Really. Nineteen eighty nine. That was her big moment, and I believe it's by far her most popular and hottest selling album. It's like a huge, a huge album. Well, so we've got we've got some Wikipedia data. It is yeah. not her biggest selling album in America. So Fearless has sold more, as mm. about a million more. Sure. So according to according to the Wikipedia data, which has source citations here, so just get off my ass. <laughs> Nineteen eighty nine has six point three million sales in the United States. So it is right. her second biggest album in America, uh, the first being Fearless. And then the next is the self-titled album, her first with 5.8. Looks like Red had 4.5 million in sales. So you're, you're not alone in thinking that yeah, Red is a, is a really good popular album. It's my it had, favorite. It it's quite my a favorite lot of sales. Yeah, it was my favorite one. But <clears throat> so you had this first folio and then there's that break. And that break is sort of where shit starts to go down for her. Um, first of all, there, of course, a lot of the stigma around her is that she writes about her exes and things. And like, there were mm -hmm. a lot of rumors at the time that maybe she was just like really happy and didn't want to do new music and whatever. I don't care. The album that she came out of, out with, which I think was reputation to me is a disaster. Yes. I think it sucks, but really, yeah, it's terrible. So that one is not in a folio. That's like when Shakespeare was partnering with people that doesn't count. Then second folio comes out with lover, which may be her actual best album in terms of hits and things. That's when she's very clearly in love and happy with this guy that she just recently broke up with, whatever. But that gap between 1989 and uh, Lover is where things start to get weird. What happens is she essentially was uh, a young kid. Her family moved from like Reading, Pennsylvania to Nashville so that she could pursue this and whatever. I don't want to get into personal rumors. There are rumors that she was a good person. There are rumors that she was kind of stuck up. Doesn't matter. Mm, okay. Whatever. Sure. But teenagers are teenagers. So... She goes down there. She meets this guy. I forget his name. He owns Big Machine Records. He's trying to make it to. He signs her. This Taylor Swift does everything for Big Machine. I'm sure Big Machine had other artists and things were good. But in, in the record label business, you only need one. And then if you get two, you're like, good, right? It's like the, Dr. The, Dre had the, Eminem and, and Snoop, the, the guy that you're talking about is this guy named Scott Borchetta. Yeah. Scott Borchetta so, found her, I think, in, like in a coffee shop or something. Wow. Well, yeah. it says that, uh, so, so according to an article by the U.S. Sun, which, again, this is not the most rigorous source citation. Amelia Beamer wrote this article for the U.S. Sun. According to it, Borchetta was the owner of Big Machine Records, and he signed Taylor Swift as an artist at age 15. Yeah. So then, meaning she was 15, he wasn't yeah. 15. <laughs> yes. So, um, and which she would have been, they would have got to work right away on... Uh, the debut album, which released probably like two years later, essentially. So Borchetta signs her 
and they make millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. She's like the hottest thing yeah, out there. And like, this is ton of money, uh, early 2000s. So other big artists at the time, I know like the Aver brothers and Mumford and sons had their banjo revolution. And then like, Kanye was big oh, and God. Eminem had just, uh, released recovery, which was like one of the best selling rap albums of all time. Jay-Z was still hot with, uh, whatever album he worked on with, with Great Gatsby. So that's, that's the era of music that we're in. Then Borchetta, he decides, like, this is, like, I've made so much money. This is great. He owns the master recordings of these. So the way it works as a musician, prior to, like, SoundCloud and everybody being able to record podcasts, the way it works... <laughs> Shout out to Spotify. Yes, and also um, making audio equipment accessible is just put a bunch of people like me and you on the internet. <laughs> It's not great. Yeah, so unfortunately, Player yeah. 3, we're yeah, here. here, here we're we not are. going anywhere. So before that happens, a record label would sign you, and they own your master recordings essentially in perpetuity. And what they'll do is they'll pay you a lot of money to make an album. They'll also pay you residuals and rights and things to go on tour. And the way that going on tour works is the stadium books you, and you book a bunch of shows, and then people get paid. And But the studio is in charge of the music. The, they will publish you and do all of the marketing and all that crap if you will give them a huge portion of the, the, well, they own the masters and then they negotiate a deal with how much your residuals are and your rights and whatever. That's the way the business works. And it's a big deal for a lot of bands, especially, you know, from about 2015 backward in history, you have to, a record label has sure. to do it, right? There's no social media, there's no TikTok to make you go viral. So she does that. Well, and when you say just real quick, when you say the master recordings, that's like, that's like the manuscript of yeah. the book, right? I mean, you can, you can perform when the record, label says you can perform because they own the rights to the actual sound of the music that right you're and and so this is like cover songs are really interesting because say theoretically um i know one for example um maroon five did a cover of a kiss or a cover of kiss on prince song kiss prince was not down and you can't find that on the internet anywhere Ooh. and they wow, released really? it with one of their albums it was a really popular album the one with um I don't remember, but it was like 2014. They, yeah, they put a, kiss, uh, a Prince song on there and he pulled it. He's like, nope, no chance. And, and also, if, you're, if people know... You, I think you're referring to the artist formerly, formerly known as Prince. The former artist formerly known as Prince, R.I.P. Um, R.I.P., shout out to Prince. So if Taylor Swift, for example, was like part of the tour was she was going to play a Queen song, like Bohemian Rhapsody, and everybody knew that, well, Queen makes that money and they get a portion of the concert sales. You can't market someone else's song because the label and Queen would own the master recording. That's right. Okay. So she does not own the masters. Nobody does, essentially. Until... A, so they're just out there. For the most part. We'll get to that in a minute. So Borchetta makes all this money off of Taylor Swift, and Taylor Swift makes all this money, and it's all good. Borchetta's like, I'm good. This music industry shit is kind of boring. I've made like probably a couple hundred million. I don't know. I'm out. So he puts the company up for sale. And the company is not a building. It's not... It's master recordings of a, of a bunch of artists, mostly... Taylor Swift. That's the cash cow of the the company, right? So he puts it up for sale and this guy, Scooter Braun, who Taylor hates and for a number of reasons, is the one with the money. He's a music industry executive and I think an entertainment industry executive. He buys the company. This is a totally legitimate business deal. Yeah, so I'm seeing it in, in 20... So the, the, according to the Sun article, in June 2019, Scooter Braun bought the company. He paid $300 million dollars yeah. For big machine and records, it, and you said, as you said, the assets for that included the master recordings for the first six albums. So, the, so it has recordings for Taylor Swift, Fearless, Speak Now, Red, nineteen eighty nine, and Reputation. Right. And so, Reputation came out right as Big Machine went for sale, I believe, because it sat for a while. Like no one's just walking around with three hundred mil, right? So, 
Right. Okay. So it's it, then Bront buys them, and Taylor, of course, and she's if if nothing else, she's a genius CEO marketer. Like I said, like she's a brilliant business person. Brilliant. One of the two greatest in our lifetime. I apparently. genuinely, but Donald Trump marketed himself to the White House. Okay, <laughs> like. <laughs> Think hard about this. I don't think yeah. I'm off here. I don't yeah. think I'm speaking hyperbole there. So, no, you're not speaking hyperbole. So, Taylor Swift is pissed, and she is a great CEO. She's made good decision after good decision after good decision in terms of her career. She's like transitioning. She did the pop transition correctly. She's done everything right. She did. And she's mad about Masterfully. this. The rumors are that, well, Scooter's kind of a slimy dude. He's an executive, nobody, whatever. But he also works with other like billionaire artists but the artists he works for are people that taylor doesn't love and he she doesn't want to be associated with him and she doesn't want to be associated with them in that view of things you're like wham poor me like he bought it this is how business is fucking done dude i don't know what to tell you and yep. she yep. is fuming and you're like you're, you're acting a little bit like a kid here like this is not great yes this is how it goes i'm sorry that this is whatever well she goes into the lab she puts her thinking cap on and she finds a billion dollar loophole essentially which is that fuck i'll just re-record them that is a really interesting idea how do you just re-record something to which somebody else already owns well i believe and this is where i haven't been able to find this exactly and i have dm'd a couple lawyers on tiktok and maybe it's too late to for them to respond but i don't think there's precedent here i think for somebody having the a company own the rights to their creation and then just simply remaking that creation. Yeah, so they don't own the lyrics. They don't own the notes. They own the master recording. Oh, yeah. interesting. So she noticed that essentially the master recording IP had been claimed and they own it, but the intellectual property of the other shit has not been claimed. Like that could also be hers. And because of that, and these, I, and I believe the record deals have that as part of the deal. Like that's her IP. That's their master recording. She can just be like, oh, mm -hmm. I'll re-record it. So it, it says here that uh, there might have been some contract details that allowed this to happen. So according to the Sun article, her contract allowed her to start re-recording those songs starting in 2020, which she announced in Good, on Good Morning America in August of 2019. So shortly after, I think, the drop of Lover, or a co coincident with that, probably on the on the tours, Lover was released on August twenty third, twenty nineteen, and that's when Taylor Swift went on GMA and said, "Hey, I'm going to re-record all this stuff." She was supposed to be named Artist of the De Artist of the Decade in the American Music Awards in November twenty nineteen, which I think anybody would agree is completely fair. Yeah, I, I I'm trying to think of justified. contemporaries, and I I think perhaps there are one or two, but I think that yeah, I have no arguments with that. Well, she really spanned the whole decade. Sure. I mean, people have phases of, of extreme popularity, but I think it's really hard to replicate that kind for of sure. popularity for that for long. Sure. But so she she allegedly wanted to play a mashup of a bunch of songs from her albums to which Big Machine owned the master recording rights, and she said that these guys wouldn't approve that they wouldn't let her play parts of her music at this award show where she was going to be recognized for her work across the decade so she was super pissed about that and then ultimately because of her contract stipulations they said they would allow her to play some of her songs as long as she doesn't re-record the albums and if she stops talking to the press about wanting to re-record the albums, so they're like okay we'll let you have this thing at the American Music Awards, as long as you don't re-record your stuff. And as we all know, 
That is not how it turned yeah, out. Yeah, so she... The tensions are high. Scooter... Executives crack me up. Business executives are very similar to war generals, which, like, the way the business was done or the, the weapons with which war was fought are not... Like, the, the next war being fought with last war's weapons are not great. You got to think ahead. And so these executives playing this kind of hardball with this person who's mega popular in the era of social media where the fans can kind of band together and make consensus decisions among themselves about what they're going to do with their money and their time is stupid. It's objectively dumb. So playing the hardball with Taylor, if you want to make money off her, just do whatever she wants. Duh. Like I would, that's what I would do. I yeah. Mean, I mean, just be nice to her. I, that's what I would have done. I think, I, I don't know. So this guy, Scooter and the executives are like, no, don't do that. She gets pissed. She, again, she does not like Justin Bieber. She obviously hates Kanye West. She's like, fuck him. I'm going to start doing it. And she does it. And the, the, the Taylor's versions of the songs do two things. One is it gives her master recording. So now she can manipulate because they're the same song, essentially. But there's more to it than that. She, there's one song on Red that uh, the All Too Well, she re re recorded a 10-minute version, which is just um, it was a really much better song, which is the original song that now she can control it because it's her stuff. So it's totally fine and everything's great and everybody likes it. The interesting part, the game theory part of this to me, which is fascinating, is what happens with record labels now and how I can't emphasize enough how strange it is that she simply asked people to support her and that they are. And not only are they, but they're doing it consciously and they're kind of mad at people who don't. It's really so interesting. So what, what exactly did she ask for here just hey stop listening to these old records start listening to my so new ones. she didn't ask she, yeah yes but that wasn't the messaging the messaging was like support me in the independence from the the man however she signed with a new record label uh sony i think or i say one of the big ones i think sony so she signed with a new record label and they are allowing her to do this because when you get to a high level i think mariah carey was like this as well they let you have the masters because they're just, they understand that having you is more important than having the masters. Like that's like a high level contract for an athlete or a CEO or whatever. Like, yeah, of course you can do whatever you want. Sure. You're the boss. So she signed with a new label. They let her do whatever she wants. And her, the fans understand that she, they hate Scooter Braun also. And it's not hard to hate Scooter Braun. He's a douchebag. So, I mean, so they, he sounds yeah, like he's a tool. So they allow, or they, they're banding together to support her. They're listening to these versions on purpose because it's supporting her and giving her the power and all of the revenue from the Spotify streams and the YouTube and the Amazon or whatever go to her, where the other versions, a huge portion of it goes to Scooter, but be very clear, a lot still goes to her, which is funny, which I, I, I find that part of this funny. It's not like he just gets to keep all of that, right? Like he doesn't, it's still hers. It's just not all hers. So these fans are like, Taylor's versions is the one. And if you don't support Taylor, then... What she's done is she's villainized this guy and this company in this process when he didn't really do anything wrong. He made some stupid business decisions and he acted like a douche, but it's a legal well, transaction. So, uh, the, there are some allegations that he kind of bullied and manipulated sure. her as a, as a client. Definitely. And he also worked with Kanye West, who, for whatever reason... Did, Kanye is an example of somebody who has completely lost his mind. And I think it illustrates like the dangers of fame. And sure. I, I don't know what's going on there, but we, we've gotten to witness the utter, utter meltdown in public of a formerly respected figure. And so this guy was working with Scooter Braun and, and obviously Taylor didn't like that because well, they're kind of sworn in. Because it's that thing with the and, media awards or whatever. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. The, the I'm gonna let you finish, but blah blah blah. I, I don't know what that was about. All time meme. <laughs> truly an all time meme. But so his personal character and his treatment of the artist was really crappy. And so he's a, he's an easy guy to vilify and he's a perfect example of a common enemy that causes sure. people to rally around the flag. So to speak. right. That's exactly right. Like he, and they can get mad at him. And cause I, from what I, I think that Scott Borchetta, he and Taylor were really good. Like he kind of made her or gave her the Avenue to make herself, I guess you could say, and I think that she's probably was probably upset with him, but he wanted to cash out. Like I think that no hard feelings there, and the company was for sale for years. And he's like, they have the money that he wants it, whatever. Um, she was upset that that's who the buyer. I was. mean, that's business. yeah, that's business. And then Scooter bought it fair and square. The way he acted as a businessman is the problem. And then she found a solution. Like she had the it was the contract language was clear. She found a solution. She did it, and she is one of very few artists, maybe ever that has a relationship with her fans that goes beyond the listening to the music in such a way that she can do this. I don't think that in our lifetime, I don't know how many artists could genuinely pull this off to the scale that she has. I know the Grateful Dead could have easily done it when everybody was alive. R.I.P. Garcia. Uh, I think they could have done it. I think a lot of the jam bands like Fish and Dave Matthews and band and, and whatnot could have done it. Um, but not at this kind of popularity and scale. No way. But the interesting thing about this to me as we get a little bit deeper into like the nuts and bolts of the decision making here is what the industry is going to do now so there have been a lot of artists who have been emboldened by taylor swift for a number of reasons but now this that they want to own their masters as well the question for them will become can you pull off can you pull this off in the relationship with your fans now for me and this is the weird this is where i'm gonna get canceled by the swifties for me, I love Red, and I Red is a really important album to me. And like of her canon, that's the one I like. That's I mean, I like a lot of other songs and stuff, but Red is very like I love that album, and I think it's her best. Her version is just different enough that I don't like it as much. I don't like is it because uh, your relationship what's, what's with the, the music is the, the originality of the music, and I can tell within seconds that this is not. I can tell the one that the billionaires. Well, what's, what's the difference? They just sound different. I don't know how to tell, describe it to you. What what does that what does that mean? What does that mean? They sound different. Are they different instruments? Different? No, it's just not. Tempos? Yeah, it's just is not the like original. So if you hear, it's very similar to kind of like a live album. You're like, oh, this is the song, and these are the people for sure, definitely. But mm, this isn't the one that's on the radio. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? I can't describe it to you. And it's it, it, the only way that you can feel like that, the way that I feel, is if you had a relationship with the music at the beginning. So for whatever songs you were listening to, so I know like Fall Out Boy, big for us between 2008 and 2014. If they re-recorded sure. and it was a little different because they're you know 10 years older now, you'd be like, mm, nope, let's go back to the original. That's how I feel. Well, they, they, did, they did that with, I think it was 2018 or 2019, they re-released they re a recording of, uh, I think one of their, their second albums, uh, Lake Effect mm -hmm. Kid, but they basically just like remastered it. Yes, like they added more depth to the to the guitar, they they added a little bit more depth to the bass. I, th I think it, it and it's just like a reworked, re basically a re-engineered song, so that the sound quality is better. I don't know if they like auto tune it or or what they do to kind of fill in the spaces, but it sounds less like a garage band and more like the work of a refined but still kind of trying to be edgy. Right. Emo that's band. what I'm. That's kind of what I'm saying, and I I think that a proof of this can be seen in like what, however you grew up listening to the song. So for me, when I hear, for example, one of the biggest hits from Red was 22, I can tell 
the one that was sang by the 22-year-old pop star and the one that was sang by the 30-year-old billionaire. I can just tell. I just... But, but... If I had grown up with Taylor's version, it would probably be the exact opposite, which is one of the things that she's doing. Like she's planting the seeds for something that's going to last for 20 years because I know I've listened to remastered recordings from our dad's old stuff. And then I hear the original, like, this is garbage. I don't want this. Give me the, give me the one I used to listen to. Yeah, it's, it, it, is, it is really amazing how much... It, it, I don't want to say it's like anchor bias, kind of. but there's something to be said about the first version of a song that you hear... Yep being the one that, that kind of sticks with Absolutely. you. Absolutely. And like the same thing with cover songs. So I find out like, oh, I'm on fire is not a whatever sister song. It's a Bruce Springsteen song. It took me a long time to like the Bruce Springsteen version. Yeah, which is kind of a shame because, yep. I mean, Bruce Springsteen is so likable. Everybody enjoys him. <laughs> yeah, well, we would say I love the boss. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I, I can't do it. I can't do it with the Bruce Springsteen. His songs are there. <laughs> He's uh, so New Jersey. They sound He's so New Jersey. like songs. So... Pennsylvania, I just... Pennsylvania, it's New Jersey. So, uh, yeah. Now, Sony, Taylor Swift has emboldened people to do this. I genuinely think that she's only the only people that really can pull this off because her fans are loyal to her. It's not... And that's where I get a little freaked out. It's not that they're fans of the music. They're fans of the music and the person, and there are plenty of them that... Did you hear about the Taylor Swift union? Yeah, I heard about the, the Swifty union. They're like, oh, it, it's... Fan work is really hard. We have to yeah. promote and blah 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 so they like started making demands of the artists to like say certain things and take certain political positions right. and give certain privileges to utterly utterly ridiculous it was ridiculous unbelievably stupid so stuff. what the problem so she was dating this dude forever and he was tall and british and her album uh folklore very much comes off like someone who's trying to impress a british person to me and i like i mean we all fan <laughs> it we all idolize them in America, it, it does. Yeah, there's like a weird like. I want these British people to. At least I want my boyfriend me. to think my music's good. Is how it came off to me. And there are some songs in there that are going to be part of a canon, but there are other ones like, dude, uh, you didn't go to Oxford. Like, also, the British people are faking it. Like, they're not that sophisticated. Stop it. Yeah, I, I think I think somebody somebody once told me that uh, if Americans could see the way Europeans see British people, we would never feel inferior right, ever again. Right, exactly right. And all, all this like bombastic stuff, like, yeah, we won the war for revolution and yeah, we won World War Two, and yeah, we helped win World War One, and yeah, we're the world's greatest superpower <laughs> and yeah, we threw off the yoke of despotism and King George III and defeated the mightiest empire in history to that time. Yeah, 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 we're better in every way, but there's still a little bit of like kind of... But I want you to like. I want it. you want to impress your parents, man. Like, you yeah, really do. What, I think you really do. About. Oedipus would understand America's play. for sure. So she's dating this guy for a million years, and they break up during the Eras tour, and then she starts. Um, how do I say? Dating, not dating. She starts rebounding with the lead singer of the 1975, who is a controversial and problematic troll. He nobody knows. People think he's an alt right guy. People think that he's like QAnon. He's just a troll, and. Most people who would be aligned with Taylor Swift fucking hate guys like this and hated him, but she wanted to bang this dude, and so she did. It was a rebound, which is funny to me for a number of reasons. Reason number one is that she is a 30-something-year-old woman. She wants to bang after a seven-year relationship. Duh. Like, it's a rebound. Number two, her doing that with a guy that her fans hate is like dating someone you know your parents will hate because you know your parents will hate them. <laughs> Yeah, it's like rebellion in its Literally. own special and way. And then she got, she got done with that. But the Maddie Healy, her, I'm not going to call it dating. They were banging. 
her banging Maddie Healy is what triggered this union. They didn't want her to date him because they were so embarrassed to have to defend her all the time. Ironically, the people that gave Swifties the most shit for this little fling are the same people that are now getting egg on their face for Tom Brady allegedly cohorting with uh, Kim Kardashian, which is fucking hilarious too. Wait, it was what? that was a rumor for a long time, and it seemed to have some legs. And now he's with some other model. I don't know or care, but that was hilarious. All the the Tom Brady sports people were the ones like, "Oh, huh, Taylor and Maddie Healy," and now they're like, "Yeah, well, Tom Brady and Kim Kardashian. What's up?" Man, pop culture it's is whack. stupid. So, all of this to say, the Taylor Swift union, there are crazy Swifties for sure, but the record label changed their relationship with artists. Now, most contracts would have somewhere between seven to eight years before you could re-record. Sony's like, nope, 10. Because they want to be like, we wow. are going to own it while it's valuable. And they're going to put another year or two on it so that we can, we're going to really own it while it's valuable. You're going to have to have multiple decades of staying power to pull this off. So they've essentially limited it to her, like, her and Eminem that can do this kind of thing. So, so uh -huh. other artists can definitely try to toy around with this, like Fallout Boy. It's not going to be like this because she's, and that only happens when you start when you're 16 years old, right? So she can, in 20 right. years, she'll be 36. She's very much still in her prime recording albums that people are going to like. Other artists are not going to be able to do this. So the industry on one hand was like, yes, artist empowerment, artists like we're empowered. On the other hand, they're like, only Taylor. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, it's, it's a weird double standard. And I, I don't know. I personally, I'm not enough of a fan of really anything in that way to get that intense about it. And I, I feel like the, the parasocial relationship that people have with fans is much more, it's much more strange now in a world with social media and stuff. I mean, like obviously you know, Beatles and Stones and Led Zeppelin, like that crazy, crazy fans. And so, you know, obviously the greatest music trio ever assembled, Rush, <laughs> the Holy Triumvirate. Their drummer was a kind of a neurotic. Uh, he, he was he was a really just a truly brilliant like singular genius. But he was also really focused and private and didn't want to interfere with anybody's life and didn't want anybody to interfere with his. Which at that level of celebrity is really challenging. And he had this this comment once. He's like, well, you know, I can't. I I I was the world's biggest Who fan. I love the Who, but I can't imagine going and trying to like find their hotel. Yeah. Or like involve myself in their life in any way, but and, and people do that now. And now with social media, it's it's possible to kind of inject yourself. I mean, you can like slide into these people's DMs. Yep. You can comment on all their stuff, and, and you know, there's I don't know what the chances are that the actual person whose name is on the Instagram account or whatever actually sees any of that stuff, or the degree to which they interact with it. They probably just mute and block everything. But it's it's a weird kind of like transient barrier that people feel entitled to take it upon themselves to do things like form a union and start making public demands on the internet and it oftentimes it doesn't really go very far because you know thinking that you can just like influence somebody's life like that is arrogant but at the same time i mean without the man without the fans to appreciate and enjoy the music the artist is not really celebrated and appreciated yeah. so it's a weird weird dynamic that continues to get more and more strange as the world is more and more interconnected through stuff like social media. So that, that relationship is, is really kind of bizarre. It is. And I think I, I, there's a part of this that's a little gendery to me and I don't mean it as in like, Oh, she's like a big feminist icon. What I mean is that as a young boy and man in the United States, I think it's, it's possible that people who are big sports fans are a little bit more used to finding out 
the personality of the person that they idolize and then being disappointed and turned off by like, wow, they're actually kind of a bad person or a rotten person the more you grow up. And I think that for a lot of young women, I don't know that that has been the case if you haven't been you know, ride or die with a bunch of sports people. So I, I, I am just in the back of my mind prepared for people that I really like on the field or on the stage or on the screen to be like, yeah, they're probably, in my experience, is a high likelihood that they're like genuinely not a great person uh, because that's happened to me so well, the, often. And the, the key difference is that their performance in athletics is about their performance right. in athletics. And for this artist, I mean, the lyrics can speak to people in a significant sure. way. Music is very moving and it can make people feel like they have some other kind of connection beyond just listening to something that somebody has created. So the the messaging that comes through, like the actual literal messaging, like the words that people are saying, that makes a, a, a difference and it makes it feel a little bit more, I don't know if it gives people like more personal permission to engage with the artist yeah. on the level of like a person, but it is a different kind of understanding of what somebody is doing. I mean, in order to be successful in the NBA, you got to be competitive and edgy and mean, and you got to like, you, you got to have a certain kind of personality. That's not yeah. like I'm the greatest person in the world and everybody admires me for my character. You have to have a competitive edge and to be a successful artist, you don't really need that. In fact, having that is kind of weird. You have to have different kinds of characteristics. Sure. And, and one of the things that makes Taylor Swift very popular is that her lyrics like speak to messages that resonate with a really broad Very variety broad. Of, uh, of, of people. I mean, I, I think a lot of people can, can feel something significant when they listen to like these longer recorded albums of like a really heartfelt you know, love story or disappointment or feeling of oneself becoming the anti-hero or, or, or whatever the case is. So that kind of the, the, the quality of what the person is doing, I think, sets people up for disappointment when they realize, oh, well, the person that sings these lyrics and, and that I'm imagining in my mind as living through them in a really significant way is actually a little bit different and more complicated when their personality and personal life come into play. Yeah, and then you, you think about, like, to use a Harry Potter reference, her songs are essentially horcruxes. Like, they're alive, they make her money, but they're also, like, <laughs> these incredibly emotional moments. So it's got to deaden her inside a little bit to kind of have to go out there and perform these over and over and over and over again, which I'm not sure, that's not unique to her, obviously. I know that there are some artists that don't perform certain songs that were mega hits because of that. Like, it, that part of my life is now ruined or whatever because of this song. So that's that's tough for her. But the thing about her and her relationship with her fans that's the most interesting to me is that she doesn't take political stands. She doesn't do anything ever to alienate even a portion of her fan base ever. She never does that. And I, I think a lot of people, like that'll be one of the main criticisms of her eventually when she comes up in the court of public opinion. Right now, everybody's kind of on Taylor Swift's side. But if she came out uh, say, for example, something that's been dividing this country is the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade. If she came out in, in favor of one way or the other, she would alienate hundreds of millions of dollars of future revenue, and it would be gone probably forever. Um, so she's not going to do that. She doesn't do that kind of thing, ever. Well, she did take a political stand in supporting like LGBT groups like uh, like GLAAD. Mm -hmm. like, what's the music video that like literally said GLAAD in it? She's one of hers? The, I'm not uh, aware of that. The advocacy organization. Yeah, like she like she definitely takes political stance. Oh yeah, it's um, you know, yeah, damn, it's from the lover. Uh, people are gonna get mad. Yeah. If any Swifties are still listening and not writing an angry email, they're gonna still listen. If any Swifties are listening to this, uh, oh, sorry. Yeah, I think that we did a pretty good job of as we wrap up here. I think we did a pretty good job of being like I said, being on the rock. Like, there's no doubt that she's incredibly talented and she's brilliant. I think that like her true musical ability is not even in lyrics; it's sort of in 
mixing like when i was trying to become a young guitar player like taylor swift stuff's a little bit more complicated than you think it's not a simple one five four six chord progression there's a little bit more going on there than you think also um the sort of composing of the 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 melodies and things she's really 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 just naturally gifted at that and you know her voice and stuff came along and she learned how to do that but her understanding of notes and compositions is really profound she's that's why it's so fucking popular she knows what she's doing um, well, and that, that skill is the only reason that I feel justified in making the comparison that I'm going to make to kind of close us okay. out here. Uh, so, and I think this also says just like a little bit about the, the music industry, the nature of it. So I, I remember watching this documentary about a certain band, which I think we all know, I don't need to say the name mm -hmm. of here. And it was like, you know, it used to be that a band would write an album, they'd go on tour and on that tour, they'd be writing the next album and they'd come back six months later and release another album like clockwork. And really it was like just constantly, constantly producing stuff. So if you compare this just like numerically from, from the beginning of the career, Taylor Swift released her first album in October, 2006. And from there, she released, how many did I say? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten studio albums in in the span of what's 2006 to today would be like 17 years. Yeah. So Crazy. if you compare that to Rush, <laughs> the Holy Triumvirate, <laughs> their first album, also self-titled, was released in 1974. And between 1974 and 1991, they released Rush, Fly by Night, Caress of Steel, 2112, Farewell to Kings, Hemispheres, Permanent Waves, Moving Pictures, Signals, Grace Under Pressure, Power Windows, Hold Your Fire, Presto, and Roll the Bones. So they released, I mean, it's not, it's not you know, double or anything. How many is that? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 albums in the same time that Taylor Swift released 10. And then Rush also still had, you know, five albums after that, and you know they they were on tour for forty years. Yeah. So I think the real interesting thing here is that okay, this is called the Eras Tour for Taylor Swift. You can say like, oh, these albums sounded different because the person was different from not like, and like that's absolutely true. But I think the best news is that somebody with this level of musicianship and this level of uh, of professional uh, uh, this this skillful handling of a very difficult industry yeah. is very likely to continue just churning out hit after hit classic album after classic album and she's gonna be making really great really meaningful stuff for long yeah time. there's no reason to see it slowing down unless she just wants to not do it for a while which i i endorse people doing that just go away for a little bit collect your thoughts and and create some new shit and live your life because i think that when people go away at the right time and come back at the right time their stuff's even better i like i she can do whatever she wants man she's in she's on she's on top of the world like her we we didn't even get into this her her tour is stimulating local economies in a way that like is kind of helping them deaden the recession like there's economic data about it it's fucking crazy um it's the first time that it is remarkable. it's one of the first times in our lifetime i know i remember he we mentioned the stones and the beatles and and led zeppelin hearing they would play stadium tours and thousands of people would be outside the stadium just to listen to it that's never happened in my lifetime only she has brought back the, the rock stardom of the 60s and the 70s like people lined up outside stadiums just to hear the songs so it's it's kind of a fun moment in mu music history for sure she didn't like a guy she she instead of just being a crybaby she did something about it she figured it out she made a plan she was she's been playing and this is so annoying she's been playing chess the whole time and and she's she's a good she's a grandmaster for sure yeah, no question about that. Another really interesting fact for, uh, 
just a data set. Ten studio albums, four live albums, five EPs, and three re-recordings. So she's got, she just released her third uh, earlier this month. Uh, she already has 23 compilation albums. Mm-hmm. Throughout their entire 40-year career with 19 studio albums, a bunch of live, a bunch of compilation, and a bunch of like other kind of uh, homage-type albums, Rush only had 11 yeah. compilations. Yeah. So... A lot of hits. Well, her best. A lot of top quality music coming out for Taylor that people want to listen to over and over and over in different forms and comments. I will die on this hill. Her best work by far. Her best album is Red. I've said that and I will continue to say that. But her best work was her contribution to the Hunger Games 1 soundtrack, which is one of the greatest soundtracks I've ever heard in my life. If you listen to it from start to finish, it just sounds like Appalachia. It's awesome. And her work with the Civil Wars, which I think is what they were called there since divorced, um, How many civil wars you got to have? Yeah, well, you know, depends where you're from, I suppose. <laughs> so that safe and sound, that and that whole album was great. I think she was a producer on the album. I don't know, but yeah, she's been she's a real industry tycoon. It's not a fake thing. Like she's a rock star, true rock star. stopped.